I have to tell the people about the Patreon. Yes, you do. Patreon.com slash SMDB. SMDB, like so many damn books. For just a dollar, you can join up and you get access to all the exclusive content that I record just for the Patreon. Also, you get to join the book club. The So Many Damn Books book club. It's been some of the best conversations I've had about books. It really always sounds like a blast. I usually like come home and just hear like giggles coming from the library. So it's a great time. You should join. And I would love to have more people join the fray. You may or may not know that Christopher runs this whole show himself on the hosting side, on the technical side, everything. This is a one-man show, truly. He does it all. Support your boy Christopher. Even at the dollar level really helps. So uh, join up patreon.com slash smdb i'd love to have you patreon.com slash smdb on with the show rebecca mckay is the author of oh i'm so sorry i don't even, <laughs> i didn't even start my show yet oh my god yeah, sure okay yeah <laughs> so many so many so many damn books Hello and welcome to So Many Damn Books, A Blessing, A Curse, A Podcast. My name is Christopher and joining me in the hyperspace version of the damn library is Rebecca Mackay. She's the author of the novels The Great Believers, The Hundred Year House, and The Borrower, as well as the story collection Music for Wartime. The Great Believers was a Pulitzer Prize finalist and won a bunch of other prizes and accolades. And most recently, she is the author of I Have Some Questions for You. I'm so excited to talk to you because I bet you I'm the first podcaster to say I do have some questions. Oh, you. you are the very first one. No, <laughs> no it's amazing. Wow. I'm so glad I got, I got here first. Well, I'm so glad to have you here. That The book was an absolute page turner. I read it in two days flat, and I just oh, loved it, every moment of it. I didn't want to be turning away. I had a great time making up a cocktail inspired by I Have Some Questions for You. So this book features a woman going back to her high school and and thinking about what she learned there um, and what she didn't learn there. Yeah. But, uh, but there's there's an amount of, um, I don't know, I was thinking of drinks that you might make or the first drinks you might order at a bar um, or with a fake ID or making something <laughs> for yourself. And so like a whiskey sour seemed like a classic sort of thing mm-hmm. to start building from. And then, um, you know, it's such a, I, I, the drink is called true crime and true crime okay. is often... Uh, bloody. So I was thinking of blood oranges. Oh, um, okay. And blood oranges are really fun because they're a little more floral. They're a little more tart than regular oranges. And I just think it's got other interesting flavors to play with. So, um, but then I put in, then the thing to sort of elevate it. And what I was thinking about was um, maybe this would be the first drink that you would order with a fake ID in a bar. But then this is like the grown up version that you would drink as an adult. Yeah. So it's a blood orange whiskey sour. Yeah, that's great. But you make your own um, sour mix, sweet and sour mix, which is just uh, lemon juice and lime juice and simple syrup. Once you make that, your drinks will all elevate. And this drink is so much better with um, homemade sour mix. Mm. And then I did add in um, Libra and Co. Grenadine because it's still a reference to the fact that it's for a kid, <laughs> something that kids mm-hmm. like. Um, and then I wanted you to shake one maraschino cherry with a drink and then garnish with the other. And that is because it's a metaphor for the truth. 
Okay. There's two versions of the truth. There's the truth that's mangled in the act of making something. And then there's the unvarnished truth that everyone thinks exists. And that's plopped on top of the drink. I like it. Yeah. So it's very um, symbolic. It's a symbolic drink as well as just something that tastes really nice. Um, So I had a very good time coming up with it. Oh, that's fantastic. I love it. I got to try this now. Yeah, you 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 absolutely should. And the people at home, this is a very fun one to to make because all you need is bourbon and everything else is just fruit juice. Yeah. Go to so many damnbooks.com to this episode page if you want to find the actual recipe or go to the damn bar part of the website where all of the recipes are. I think I've got over oh, 100 cool. at this point. <laughs> so that is the true crime. Before we get to your incredible novel, I do have another segment of the show that I absolutely love. It's called What Did You Buy? Rebecca, what have you bought recently? Or what um, has been sent to you? Sent to me? Oh, good Lord, I haven't even opened half my mail. Honestly, books that I will never blurb. I feel really bad <laughs> about it. I get a lot of books in the mail and I feel really crappy that I can't help them all. Um, I'm going to show you, this is like really funny. I'm going to show you like the most mundane, silly objects. It's right here on my desk that I just bought. Okay. It is a trapezoidal outlet. <laughs> it's yeah. like plug it into one and there are three outlets. It's a outlet extender, right? Mm-hmm. So what this is for is airplanes because if you've ever been on a plane and you try to plug your computer in and the computer, like the, the box part of the computer cord, right. It's heavy mm-hmm. and sticking it. And it just like falls right out of the socket yep. um, under your seat. And then you don't realize, and then you're down there and you're like under your neighbor's legs and it's really awkward. Um, and I was on a plane cause I am on planes constantly right now. I was on a plane with a guy who was like, I was having problem and he was like, Oh, he's like, I have this thing basically just, you know, really solid, you know, three prong extender you could, and, you know, use mine. And I was like, that's a really good idea. So I actually ordered this thing so <laughs> that now it goes in my little bag with all my cords uh, for the airplane and it has come in handy. Like, so you don't like plug it in and then it's wilt sadly out of the socket. This is so mundane, but this is like, because I'm traveling so much right now, this is making me very happy. It was sitting right here. So I I needed to tell you about it. No. Yeah. I love it. And I think, first of all, I love any time that someone is like kind on a plane because I just feel like that is not the norm anymore and it's becoming less and less the norm, Uh, but really nice. And also, um, you know, little, the little doohickeys that make your life better. um, There are, yeah. They make your life better. It's, it's they do. just little things. I did get some books in the mail myself that I wanted to um, tell everyone about because I'm really excited about them. I've got Dorothy Says Owlish, which um, is coming out from Grey Wolf um, this summer in June. It's um, it's about a music box ballerina coming to life owned by this literature professor. Mm. And he ends up having a affair with her. Um very strange wow. sort of bizarre cool. sounding book um owlish and then um, i was at the deb ball the one story deb ball um a couple uh, weeks ago and absolutely the most fun i make the cocktail for it for a few years now it's just no the way. best and um 
I picked this up from one of their stacks. They put their books that have come out in stacks for people to take. And I took um, What We Fed to the Manticore by Talia Lakshmi Kaluri. And all of these stories in this collection are from the perspective of animals, different animals. Cool. Oh, I love animal perspective stories. Yeah. I, I'm a student of dog ones in particular, but any animal mm. I love reading from the perspective of. Yeah, that's cool. And then I'm going to Paris soon. Um, uh, my wife and I are going to Paris. So I picked up this book, A Place in the World Called Paris with a forward by Susan Sontag. Um, it's a collection of writers like James Baldwin and Colette and T.S. Eliot and Sylvia Plath and just a murderer's row um, writing about Paris. And I'm really, really excited to get into it. I want to read some more books about Paris before I go. I like to situate myself like that in a place before yeah, I go Yeah, I place. love that too. I've got to, if I'm going somewhere, I've got to read something about the place or from the place. I mean, yeah. it's, it's not, not if I'm like going to Sheboygan, but you know, like <laughs> if I'm going to another country, yes. <laughs> well, you know, if, if listeners have other Parisian or I'm also going to Italy. So any Italy mm-hmm. or um, French books to recommend I'd love to hear from them um, oh man yeah we'll, we'll see if they if I get a good list going I'm over the moon to be talking to you about this new novel um, of yours I have some questions for you can you please tell my audience in your words what it's about um, in yeah. case they haven't encountered it yet somehow yep I'll get the, this is like the one minute version. So um, we have a protagonist named Bodie Kane. She's 40. When she's invited back in the dead of winter to teach for just two weeks at the boarding school in New Hampshire that she had attended herself as a really adrift scholarship kid from Indiana. And while she's back, she's teaching. She, she as an adult, is a um, film historian. She has a podcast on film history. So she's teaching a class on film history and a class on podcasting. And while she's back, her mind is, of course, back on the mid-90s when she graduated, but very specifically on the death, their senior year, of a young woman named Thalia Keith. Uh, Thalia was found dead in the campus swimming pool with significant injuries to her body. And very quickly, a young Black man named Omar Evans, who worked as an athletic trainer at the school, was arrested Um, and convicted with what seemed like a mountain of evidence against him, DNA, et cetera, including a confession. Um, But there are a lot of people online within this world who believe that Omar is the wrong guy. And among them is one of Bodhi's podcast students, a uh, high school senior who decides that she is going to take on the 1995 death of Thalia Keith as her podcast project. And uh, Bodhi is both terrified at the prospect. She does not want to look at this thing directly um, and also incredibly intrigued because she has had unanswered questions for a long time. And we go from there. Oh, I'm back in it. It's great. I actually, of course, as a podcast enthusiast and maker, I was loving the podcast side of this book. Um, what is your relationship to podcasts? How did you start deciding that needed to be part of your novel? Yeah, I mean, my relationship is I, I listen to a lot of them, you know, uh, I, I, um, I have ADHD and I, I have a very hard time just doing one thing at a time. Um, so they've, you know, saved my life and not my life, but they, they've saved my laundry, let's say <laughs> in a way, right? Like I, 
I can multitask and that that's really helpful. Um, and, uh, you know, really, I really love educational podcasts. I love like 99% invisible things like that, mm-hmm. where it's like, you know, they just, um, or, um, decoder ring just did, their new episode is on like parking spaces. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Eat that up. Um, but I also have listened to some true crime ones and I'm drawn to that. Like a lot of people are, um, it just, you know, I needed a way for, um, students to be digging into this case and that seemed you know more likely in this day and age than like a student writing a a story for the newspaper seemed like there would be more people to interview further to dig um it's it's a natural uh role a natural venue for modern detective essentially um i'm i'm not writing detective fiction but you know, you, this is something where someone's in the role of trying to figure out what already happened here. And, uh, you know, it's, we're not really in a believable time where you can get the like Miss Marple kind of like, I'm just an old knitting lady. And I decided to investigate, (laughs) you know, the series of crimes in the village. Like who, who does, right. Who is it literally realistically that looks into cold cases? Who, who are the people doing that besides, maybe, you know, investigators right now it's podcasters. Well, I never thought about it like that. It's, it, it is funny because so many of the best detectives are not actually detectives at all. They don't, right. they're just sort of interested and they have good answers. And that, and that continues today. I mean, even the, the, the Thursday murder club is another group of people solving mysteries. That is oh, okay. Really yeah. Them. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I feel like that's, I, but and I didn't think of podcaster as being like the the next, but of course, yeah, that right. that makes a lot of sense. Um, were you an early adopter to the form, um, or did you come to it in the last few years? Oh no, I mean, I think I I think everyone the first podcast everyone listened to was the first season of Serial, right? And that was twenty fifteen, I think. Is that right? Twenty fourteen, twenty fifteen. So yeah, that was you know that was the first one I listened to, and then just listen to lots more <laughs> yeah they're a magical thing now that you've ha- been, had the novel out for a couple months um have you had any sort of surprising or welcome early reactions to the book yeah I mean it's I, you know the I've been really thrilled that it's been taken seriously I'll say that I think you know I risking on two levels um because I'm writing literary fiction this is adult literary fiction right um, the risk there is number one, I am writing about someone looking back on adolescence and people could, especially when you're like, and when you're a woman and you do those things, people, it's, it's a little more like people are more likely to kind of pat you on the head. Um, uh, so I'm, I'm writing about adolescence and then I'm also writing what is definitely not a traditional murder mystery, but we do have a murder that, you know, is, might've been wrongly solved. And by the end of the book, we know who did it. And, um, you know, when people get a whiff of genre, which this isn't, but they, they you know, it, it's adjacent to that. They can be very condescending about that. And so um, I, I did worry going in, like, okay, I'm writing about someone looking back on their teenage years and I'm writing what people, you know, might call a murder mystery. I don't know if people are going to kind of dismiss this. Um, so I've been thrilled. People have taken it seriously. It's, you know, been, I've, I've, you know, couldn't wish for a better reaction um, or better uh, support from bookstores, better sales. It's It's been great. So I've been really happy. And um, I've been happy too, just the, um, 
I've been thrilled that people will come up and and I don't, I wrote a book, I will say, I, I tried to write a book wherein if you do figure out, if you do think you know who did this midway through, you won't feel disappointed at the end. You'll feel mm -hmm. maybe like you've vindicated or something, right? Um, but I've had, so I've had a, maybe a couple people like that being like, I thought, but I didn't know how, but I thought it was. Um, but mostly I've had people come up and say, I really thought it was this other person. Or I really mm -hmm. thought, you know, um, it fell for kind of a red herring and been very surprised by the outcome. And that's been, that's gratifying. Cause you know, you're like, you're kind of like, I like kind of want to trick people a little bit, you know, and we'll, we'll see. <laughs> There were definitely some really fun red herrings throughout. And another thing that I think is is working here is this sort of, it does seem like you're also critiquing the true crime podcast right. industry, as well as depicting the making of a very good one. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the sort of having it both ways sort of, it's it's fantastic. Well, I mean, I think I think true crime media goes both ways. Right. Um, I, I think there's there's good and bad. Uh, sometimes it's right side by side, and you know it's good and bad for the consumer, where like this could really mess you up, but also for some people it's stress relief. <laughs> and then you look at the actual cases being discussed. There's some gross, lurid retellings of like, why do we need to hear about Jeffrey Dahmer again? Right. Mm -hmm. We're not learning anything here. Um, and I'm sure, I don't mean I haven't watched the new series. It might be it might be wonderful. I just mean like. Like, why are we, why are we doing that? Right. Totally. And then, but at the same time, there are cases getting solved. There are cold cases getting reopened. There's national attention on things. People are identifying Jane Doe's online or um, like the Murdoch thing in South Carolina. I don't think we would have gotten justice there if that had stayed local. Mm -hmm. Right. And that was podcasting and, and outside media before that was like hitting home in South Carolina. Um, so it, it is a contradictory thing. And um, I'm putting all that in there. I'm not coming to, the book is not coming down on this is all good or this is all bad. Um, and we're getting, you know, within the book, uh, this, this student podcast makes, makes this student podcast makes things happen. We also have this really kind of icky guy with a YouTube channel who's obsessed with the case. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and then the book itself, you know, I'm of course, Here's the thing. I'm not writing true crime, mm -hmm. fictional crime about true crime. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. So it's it, it's having it both ways in part because I don't have this moral dilemma of, oh, but am I harming people by writing this? Am I re-victimizing? Because these people only live in my head. Mm -hmm. right? right. So, um, you know, and if, if I were if I were writing about a real case, I think I'd have a lot more ethical hoops to jump through questions for myself. But this is you know, I'm only hurting myself. <laughs> People are <laughs> right. only this is capital E entertainment at the, at, right, the right. at the end of the day. Um and it is it's it's wonderful in that way. Was there anything surprising about how police procedure works that oh, you discovered while you were researching? Yeah, I mean I and this this is um you know, I did research as, as either you found out or you guessed. Thank you. Um, uh, yeah, I worked, I worked, um, really closely with a public defender from New Hampshire and I'm not interested in the, you know, the law and order SVU version of things. Um, I, you know, wanted to know specifically like New Hampshire 
investigation procedure, New Hampshire appellate law, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Um, Something I found really early, I I knew this existed. I just was, you know, it was like, oh, this is the case in New Hampshire um, and was able to use it was that there are states that do not require the recording of interrogations. Mm. And New Hampshire is one of those. So, you know, you can interrogate someone for 25 hours and none of that's on the record. All we get is the signed confession at the end of that. We don't know what happened in that room. Um, Some states have done away with that, which is great, but New Hampshire still has that. Um, You know, other things, I think there were more surprises for me within about the legal system than about policing. I don't know. I think that I think the general public is perhaps more aware of the ways a, a police investigation could go wrong, the mm-hmm. ways it could be railroaded, um, than we are aware of the absolute near impossibility of getting a retrial after a conviction. That was a road that I mean, it was, it was you know disheartening road to go down, but it was it was educational. <laughs> and I think people would learn a lot of that stuff, you know, by reading the book too. It's um, everything that's in there is accurate. Yeah. I, I, I felt the research in a good way on the page. Mm-hmm. It didn't feel didactic. Or yeah, no, I gotcha, yeah. <laughs> but I, I definitely felt like um, I was reading how this would probably go down. Mm. Your bio says that you live on campus of a boarding school. I do. Um, some a part of it. So how soon into living uh, at a boarding school did you start writing a campus novel? Oh, 18 years. Oh, okay. Yeah, I've lived here. <laughs> if I'm doing the math right, I've lived here for 21 years. Um, oh, also 17 years, whatever, 16. Anyway, um, yeah, I, I, been living here since 2001 I started writing really typing you know writing the book in uh 2019 so 18 years <laughs> um so uh yeah that's um uh I really I you know it's a really interesting environment um I you know for people listening I I don't teach here my husband does and that's why we live on campus um I don't interact with the students unless it's you know, they used to be my babysitters for my kids, like, but they're not, um, it's, you know, people, people always imagine way more interaction on my part than there is. Right. Um, that, yeah, like I, they must be in my house all the time. Like they are not, <laughs> <laughs> but it is a really, really interesting environment. Um, the fear of course, is that, and first of all, no matter what you write, someone is going to think it's about them. Mm. Um, it's just, and it's like people, people are so self-focused. It's amazing. Like it's like that spotlight effect, I guess you think everyone's thinking about you mm-hmm. when they're not. Um, and, um, so of course, you know, the fear then if I'm going to write about a boarding school, even though I'm bending over backwards to set it in New Hampshire, not in Chicago where I live and all of this, of course, the fear is, um, you know, well, number one, people, I mean, yeah, pe- people who are involved in the school could think it's about this school. People who aren't involved in this school could think it's about this school. I hopefully solved some of that with my, with my author note in the back of the book, just mm-hmm. like you guys, it's not, it's not, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I'm sure there's someone out there. Um, but, um, yeah, I was, I was, I, so for that reason, I think I held off longer than I might have just because I was like, I don't want to deal with the people who are like, how much of this is autobiographical? And, um, 
you know, it's, it's something can be based in something you know without totally. it being autobiographical, right? Like a right. doctor write a medical novel without it being autobiographical. Um, so that's that's the story. I just find campus novels to be so um, unmissable. I I always I find myself gravitating to them, um, and I'm not sure what it is. And I was curious if you had any insight, like what is it about that that makes them yeah. so compelling? I love them too, whether it's you know high school or college. Um, I think there's partly it's you know it's a limited cast of characters, it's a limited space, it's a hot house petri dish whatever you know whether we're talking about high school or college a very formative time in people's lives if we're thinking about the students i'm actually usually more interested in the faculty version the um i was devastated you know the um the show the chair i don't remember what network that was on did you watch that i think it was was on netflix sandra and like it was yeah it was one season it was so good and they didn't renew it and i'm devastated because like the faculty part is so much more interesting to me but um I think there's that. I think for boarding schools in particular, um, there are people who want to read about a boarding school because they did go there and they want to see it represented. And there are people who want to read about a boarding school because they didn't go there and they want to know what it's like. Um, And a lot of representations out there are really inaccurate. So (laughs) like, you know, um, the ones that are, I I really appreciate the, you know, prep Curtis Sittenfeld. She knows what she's talking about. Um, They're, you know, there are there are some great ones out there, but there are also some where you read it and you're like, that's not how anything works. What do you that's like, like come on, <laughs> you just make stuff up off the top of your head. Yeah, I, I find myself completely drawn to them, whether they're bad or good. Like it doesn't really matter if it's a good right? representation. It, I it's like a fan of the genre where I just I'm like, oh, a new one. So it's a low bar for me, but when they're flying above it, it's just absolutely wonderful reading. Mm. Um which I think that your book is. Oh, thanks. Going all the way back to the borrower, it seems like you like generations colliding as an engine. Oh, yeah. Why is that such a fruitful well for you? It's a good question. Um, I think, honestly, I think you're the only person who's ever asked me that. I, um, I get asked a lot about time and memory within within the book within my books um and i've gotten asked about the generation gap in this book the the Mm -hmm. kids she's teaching versus her own generation but to notice that because i i don't know that i've thought about that much um but yeah i mean it's i think that it's the it's the human representation of the passage of time it's you know people are a product of their age and you know the, the the decade or whatever that they grew up in and um you know, we have, we have real clashes in, in the real, I mean, major clashes within the real world, especially political between generations, um, people who just don't understand each other. And there's something, I'm not, I'm not writing about that kind of thing, but there's just something really interesting in, it's, it's almost like you have, you literally have people from, you know, different worlds, right? In, in the most, um, they're not, actually from different planets but like the earth in 1975 versus the earth now it's a different place um and you have people you know trying to talk to each other and and each one of them is from one of those planets they're from different planets um so there's yeah it's just it's just interesting i'll say that yeah i mean it's like two fish out of water stories clashing because they're neither person is in necessarily their normal 
space. Right, right. In a larger sense, the Rebecca Mackay Library. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling about it at this point? And you're, you've got four novels, you've got your short story collection. Um, how does it look on a shelf to you? Are you excited about where you are? Is this where you thought you'd be um, when you first put out The Borrowers 10 years on? Oh, man. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, that's a good question. Uh, it's not like I had all my books planned out, you know? <laughs> no, of um, course not. Right. But no, I mean, I think that if, you know, The Borrower came out in 2011, and I think that if, you know, I could send a message to myself that was, you know, okay, within 12 years, you're going to have four more books out be really happy um <laughs> let alone like how they've been received right just mm-hmm. like three more novels in a story collection like hell yeah that's I'm I'm okay with that I've you know I've worked my ass off I have done a lot of the things that I you know originally wanted to do I had you know kind of bucket list things of not so much in terms of what I wanted to write but where I wanted my books to end up what I'm you know those writer things that you wanted you know like like oh, what Oh, like just like be on NPR, you know, and like, like you get, they get crossed off the list one by one. It's hard to remember, you know, on, on any given day, like you can have a crap day mm-hmm. and it's really hard to just sit back and get that overall perspective on how far you've come, where things are, things being very, very good overall. Um, but of course, you know, it's like things, you know, you can be saying things are great for my career, but also the world is falling apart and it's, uh, um, but I, I, you know, that perspective is always helpful. It's really, it's good. I guess I'm interested in how becoming an author and then, and then continuing to be one and writing more books uh, relates to also how you personally read. How has that relationship to reading changed? Who? yeah. I mean, I, I was always, um, you know, always a very ambitious reader. Um, like my undergrad and master's degree are in literature rather than writing. Um, I, um, you know, there's this, you know, this thing that happens that's a little bit sad sometimes of like, you'd start to lose some of the just pure joy of reading because that is also work, Um, you know, and you're reading something and you're like, well, but I, you know, I, I heard this person's a jerk. <laughs> you know, like, I I love this book and that they're probably going to beat me for a prize this year. So fuck them. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, but so it's, it's, or just, you know, this is, I mean, I don't know. I, there's, of, of course, there's tremendous joy for one thing in like, oh my God, I, I don't know how they did that. Right. It, I, I've been working on this for a long time. I don't know how they pulled that off. And there's also just huge joy in making friends with a lot of brilliant writers and then watching them succeed or getting to read their work. Um, I'm doing this project uh, right now where I'm I'm trying to read my way around the world in translation, um, which is going to take a few years, um, hopping from country to country, kind of amazing race style. And there are several reasons I'm doing that. One is it's a memorial to my father, but Um, it's also that I realized I was just for professional reasons, um, reading almost nothing but contemporary American fiction Mm -hmm. and American fiction has a breadth to it right now. That's incredible that, you know, we couldn't have dreamed of, you know, even 20 years ago, but it's still contemporary American fiction. 
And um, I wanted to read like, what's something from 1904? What's something from Croatia? Like what's, what's the best Egyptian poetry? Um, so that is, and then I don't have with those, I don't care if they're a jerk. I don't care if they won an award. I don't care if they're better than me. I don't care if they're worse than me. I don't care. Like, I'm just, I'm just reading it. And that, that's something I'd miss, been missing out on for a while. Well, you actually um, recommended a book from this project sure to did. me. Madonna in a Fur Coat by Sabahattin Ali. And first of all, I did not realize that this was not a contemporary book right. until after I was done. Oh my God. Um, because I just got, I, as soon as you recommended it, I just got an audio book from the library and went straight into it without even, and I, it's one of my absolute favorite ways to go into a book is just completely, all I know is that Rebecca Mackay told me to read this, um, which is just a great way to start listening to anything. Mm -hmm. And it completely transported me. The, the one sort of, um, giveaway was just the long uh frame story like it just was like is this someone aping you know an old timey <laughs> style or is this really and then finding out oh this novel's from 1943 yeah um, so so th this book came across your desk in this project but how did how did it how did I find it? Yeah, how'd you find it in the first place? Yeah, well, for all these books, it's a combination for me of books I already knew about and had wanted to read. So I started, for instance, with The Door by Magda Sabo, Hungarian novel, been wanting to read it for years. Um, other ones, um, I'm asking a certain friend who knows that literature really well to recommend things. So the novelist Rabia Alamedin, um, I had him, I asked him if he would choose a lot of the Arabic books. So he chose my Syrian book that I just finished and my Palestinian book that I'm reading now. And, um, and then other ones, I just Googled like, you know, best Croatian poet. <laughs> and um, this one was, you know, I just was like, what's the, what is considered the best Turkish novel of all time? Um, and, you know, of course, whose opinion, but, but what I found was, you know, this write up and people were talking about this 1943 novel that almost no one had read at the time that for the last five years or so has suddenly been one of the best-selling novels in Turkey. And just this huge, you know, rediscovery of, and this author was murdered by the government ah. in the 40s. I mean, there's a whole story to this. Um, I'm writing about these all also. Um, I have a substack where I'm writing about what I'm reading. So I like, did all this research just to, to write that up. Um, I, I'll make sure to link to that um, in the show page. So you can check out this Substack as as, as well. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Knowing the time, this changes everything for me because he's writing about this young Turkish guy who goes to Berlin, falls in love with a half Jewish woman, kind of a doomed love affair and returns home. He's writing this in 1943. And he's writing about, you know, and then you think how long it takes to write a book. And then like he he doesn't know yet necessarily. I mean, he he knows that things aren't good when he writes this book. But you read if you read this thinking it's contemporary, I think your takeaway at the end is going to be, oh, and she and all of her family are are absolutely doomed. And and that would be true if the book were reality. And I think it might be based in reality, like something that happened to him. But that's not necessarily the book he that's not necessarily the implication he wanted to give us. Right. Right. For the people at home who don't know this book, do you want to give them a short synopsis of what this is? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I kind of did a little bit. So yeah, there's, and I'm I'm not even going to do names. I'll just say there's, um, 
so that we have a frame story. There's this man working um, kind of like as a translator at a business. He he finds, he meets this slightly older guy um, who just seems really depressed mm-hmm. and like sick and the narrator goes and visits him. And this guy is like, here, here's my journal. <laughs> right. Go and read it. <laughs> and um, And so he does. And the journal is, all about um when he was a young man he's goes to study soap making in berlin and um meets this really enchanting uh german jewish painter and the gender i think this is part of what's going on with turkish readers right now the gender roles are really slippery and contemporary and a little bit Mm non-binary um and really ahead of its time in that way and uh you know he's you know a a love story ensues it is it is you know a tragic love story um and then you know then we get the you know we we return to the frame and I'll I'll, you know leave things kind of vague there but (laughs) well I mean it's funny because that sort of gender play is so forefronted which is why I felt like it was a little bit more contemporary yes right uh, because Rafe is constantly referred to as effeminate and even the his paramour the woman he's falling for Maria is constantly sort of telling him that that he has this sort of feminine energy but she loves him for it right Um, she's not insulting him yeah it's a yeah exactly right in some ways it sort of feels like Maria is like a proto manic pixie dream girl in some ways same thing when I was talking about this yeah I was almost gonna say that too um yeah just kind of like follow me around Berlin I'll show you yeah 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 I'm the bohemian who lives this bohemian lifestyle painting things um and and the the painting itself also seems lovely and I I could picture so many things to fit for it Mm. um it felt like also like a Turkish update of great expectations Ooh, how so in a way of just like someone's like going sent off to become a gentleman okay. like to in you know go make your fortune and then you know estella in great expectations yeah. is this sort of tragic character who the narrator falls in love with but she's never in love with him in the same way right right yeah i like um, it yeah but then like of course it's twisted because it does seem like maria did sort of love him in the way that he loved her but it's hard to tell I mean yeah and that's right by the end yeah it's what's maybe seems like a betrayal might not have been a betrayal and you get yeah yeah and as and as timeless as it feels it also feels so dated because of also those gender roles and the way that they're brought up yeah well and the thing I was laughing about this I was saying in my sub stack the the one moment it was like he's following her down the street and into this nightclub and then she has, she's like, finds him and she's like, oh, I, I knew someone was following me. And so I was very intrigued. Like, said, <laughs> no woman ever. <laughs> what? All women love being followed. Love being trailed in that the dark. Is, that is what you learned from this book. <laughs> that is the takeaway. Right? Like, um, I'm not, I'm not, I would hope a contemporary editor would be like, um. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I listened to a, this book. Um, Robert Fast was the narrator truly a wonderful uh read in that respect and um i think it's interesting that two people translated it uh maureen freely and alexander doubt like what is what is the relationship of two people translating a single book that seems yeah fun. i don't know and did they this is oh so i think what it is 
I, I have to look at my own subset, honestly, to find the answer. <laughs> I could, and I'm gonna, I might be mixing it up with another novel, but there's at least one that I read where it was like, it was translated from the original into French and then from French into English. Oh, wow. That could be the situation here. Interesting. I could be absolutely making that up. So that's I a real no idea. That's a real game of telephone right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I guess it's, the book is sort of just about how if you hate yourself, so will everyone else. Is is I felt like another takeaway. Yeah. I, uh, that actually, yeah. The, the in terms of what happens to this guy later, right? He's just sad and oh, yeah. It's yeah. a it's a portrait of a man destroyed. Um, yeah. Which, but it's all it's really luscious writing too. Even though it's only it's so short. I love a short book. <laughs> I gotta say, um, yeah. I, I like I like both ends of the spectrum when it's when a really long like over 500 pages and under 200 I'm always sold on either end yeah yeah me too I um yeah I keep trying to write a short book and I keep failing faster <laughs> was this supposed to be a short one too or did oh you yeah <laughs> all my books are supposed to be short and they just get longer and longer and I, it's interesting speaking of translation one of the you know my my agent would be very happy if my next book is short partly because it's a lot harder to sell translation rights with a long book because oh. you got to pay, they got to pay the translator a lot more and it takes a lot more time. Um, so, you know, and you might, the book might be coming out then two, three years later and um, it's a lot easier with a short book. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. The whole world of foreign rights and foreign translation, it's so fascinating to me in no small part because you don't know what those translations of your book are saying and what they like took I for know. granted. And, and and do you get any actually um, correspondence from your translators? Yeah. Do they ask you like, what is it, this? It depends. Um, some translators I never hear from. I don't know who they are. Um, others, you know, have a million questions. Um, my, my Polish translator for this book um, has been in contact a lot. Sometimes, you know, sometimes really asking for your help in making decisions because especially there are a lot of languages where everything is gendered and so I said you know he got a letter from his cousin and they're going male, male cousin or female cousin which one do you want what were you picturing um uh and just other things of like do you mean this or do you mean this um I will say but uh, my parents uh were both linguistics professors and my father before he passed away he spoke about 16 languages or so with like you know, reading and writing pretty fluently. My mom speaks maybe more like 10. Um, they they could read my translations. <laughs> Not all of them, right? But like, um, I, they, I've definitely, you know, uh, given my mom, you know, whatever version of the book oh. and been like, you know, and she, she doesn't, you know, and in, you know, most cases they don't know, you know, wouldn't know the language well enough to really make a literary judgment on it, but could, you know, be like, oh, this is, you know, this is solid or this, you know, has a good, good voice to it. Um, so, uh, yeah. And then there are ones, it's a lot easier to read in another language when you know, literally what every word says <laughs> or what every sentence means. So I can, you know, whereas, um, you know, my French, French is probably the only language I could sit down and read a novel in, but Spanish and Hungarian, I could, you know, sentence by sentence be like, well, I know what the sentence is, so I can, mm -hmm. uh, piece it together. It's not a way, it, I can't judge the literary merit, but I can improve my Spanish or Hungarian by reading, <laughs> I guess. Well, that is a very specific um, language learning mantra. Uh, just to read right. your own work in translation. Yeah. 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 That is great. Um, 
so both of your parents translated literature? No, no, okay. no. Linguistics professors. Linguistics. Uh, professors. My father did uh, translate uh, poetry, especially, and especially just you know, in and out of Hungarian, very specifically. Um, but uh, no, linguistics is a really broad field. Translation mm. is adjacent to it, but um, there's ooh, lingu- you know. I could give you the, you know, the five hour tour of linguistics, <laughs> the, the linguistics professor life, but um, it was an, it was an interesting, it was an interesting way to grow up. I was dragged along to a lot of linguistics conferences as, as a very young child. I, I feel like a love of reading could have gone either way with that. Yeah. Like you could have rebelled and said no books. Right. And it's not, this is the thing I think pe- people misunderstand and they're like, oh, linguists, they must have been, you know, like reading poetry and like speaking. And it's like, no, <laughs> they were complaining about departmental politics and like, this is not the romantic thing you think it is. And um, I was encouraged to read. We had books, but it, it was not like a, um, and you know, but especially, you know, both, both my parents, you know, the wonderful with, you know, buying me books, talking to me about books all that stuff. But I think people sometimes think there must be some like real, you know, um, I don't know. So they, they imagine kind of a romanticization of, of what, what would really go on. And I think people then imagine that I, as a writer must be driven by a love of language. Mm. And I will say, I take, I take language for granted is what ends up happening. Um, I'm not the kind of writer where I'm like, you know, what's a beautiful, beautiful word is celery. I'm just, I'm not that writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am, I will get hives over a sentence that doesn't sound right, but I'm like the, like how cool are words? I'm over it. <laughs> like, I, believe me, I grew up, you know, like my dad could give you 45 minutes on the etymology of a word. I'm over words are cool. <laughs> I just, I just want to tell a story. Mm. That's interesting then to go into particularly literary fiction, which puts a little bit more on a sentence. It, it, it asks sentences to do do more. I feel like it would also have made sense to have gone into pure plot writing thriller. Yeah. Sentences, yes. But I think people are imagining that I'm like, you know, savoring every word or something. Like I'm not, I'm not fetishizing words. I'm just, <laughs> you know, I'm yeah. Words are vehicles. They'll get you there. Right. And sentences are vehicles. Yeah. And I and I am. I am for a literary fiction writer, I am a plot-driven writer. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of writers of literary fiction who are much more, you know, just, you know, the the engine is philosophy or the engine is observation. And it's it's not about things happening. And I, as I said before, I have ADHD. I need plot. <laughs> I need stuff to happen like yeah. all the time. Yeah, I need plot as well. I guess this goes back to the question that I was asking earlier about, you know, the, the Rebecca Mackay library, but are you, do you look to anybody's career or is there someone that you say like, oh yeah, I want, like, that's kind of what I'm hoping hmm. to do. That's a good question. Um, I really admire writers who, or not, I mean, I admire, <laughs> I admire anyone who writes, right? Um, I, I, you know, I'm the kind of writer where every one of my books is very different. Um, and I, I actually, I love some writers where you kind of know every time what you're getting, right? Like a John Irving book is a John Irving book is a John Irving book. There's, you know, they're going to be different, but they're all going to have a bear in them and someone's arm is going to get chopped off like every time, <laughs> right? And um, I 
really, you know, I like doing wildly different things. And so when I see a writer doing that and then doing that well along, um, you know, someone like Colson Whitehead, who our work has very little in common, right? But every book of his is completely different. I mean, I think he's writing a sequel to the last one, but you know what I mean, right? Like yeah, no, I, yeah. you know, like, hey, zombies, <laughs> like, all right, man. Um, uh, Lauren Groff does the same thing. We're, we're more, you know, we're the same age. So I, it's not like, you know, some like, you know, godmotherly figure I'm looking, but just going like, yeah, I like, this is, this is the kind, this is my jam too. Right. Um, so just, yeah, when I, when I can see someone like just kind of building that shelf, taking risks, you know, like I'm going to have a, if I don't, if I don't have a big swing and a miss at some point in my career, have I taken the right risks? Mm. You know, like, I don't know. It's almost like you're asking for your, like your next book to be completely misunderstood or something. I, I think it might be, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell some, me more about that? Um, not, not while we're recording, but <laughs> do when we stop recording, but um, it's the kind of thing where, you know, it's, I, here's what I'll say. It's a topic where um, I think I can pull it off. I do, but it, it's the, the nightmare scenario is that um, it's sort of, um, some 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 press release gets out there or something without your say so and it's just kind of described in a way that then everyone on twitter goes what <laughs> and like without having read the book just decides to like give you like a thousand one star goodreads reviews just based on the topic right. um and that happens to people once in a while maybe we're starting to learn our lesson on that i hope to god but um you know it's a it's a you know um, the kind of thing that someone could just see the topic and maybe misunderstand. So, oh, I wish we could move along from the days of using Goodreads to send a message. Like, I wait, know, I know. What a what a lame what a lame way to do that. I would love to hear recommendations from you for our good people. Ooh, um, yeah. Do you have anything you'd like to to recommend? Experience, book, m music, movies. Oh man! Oh, you're TV. gonna like, you're making it that broad. Oh, whatever shoot. you want. But books. <laughs> this is a book podcast, so those those are always right. welcome. Right. Well, I'll say the other my other favorite so far in my you know reading around the world, and I'm only like eight books in. But my other favorite is The Door by Magda Sabo, which I mentioned earlier. That's a Hungarian novel. It's so good. Um. It's about a woman's relationship with her very strange housekeeper. It's mm. it's wonderful. Um, that's 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 a good hook. Yeah, and another <laughs> another quick read. Um, that one's I think I think it was written in the eighties. Um, God, other than that, I man, what do I recommend? I it's it's too it's such a bright category that I'm gonna have a hard time there. I. Uh, I uh, hmm. let's see. I'm watching uh, I'm watching Beef on Netflix right now, which is um, it's good. It's really good. It it's dark, so it oh. maybe might not be for everybody. Um, yeah, it's the type uh, of show that after every episode you say, "Oh no." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. Things are just getting worse and worse. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but I I am enjoying it, and I'm. Because like because I can't do one thing at a time. What I'm doing is actually I'm I'm watching it in English with Hungarian subtitles because I'm trying to work on my Hungarian. Um, 
And uh, that is, you know, so I'm doing that, but then usually I'm also like crocheting or brushing my teeth or something at the same time. So it's a, wow. The whole thing. (laughs) Yeah. That, that sounds like a total, like total bliss out to have all three of those things going at the same time. That's great. Exercising or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Any other recommendations you want to throw Uh, across the plate? I think everyone should sleep. I think everyone should (laughs) naps. They're good. That's what I think. (laughs) I'll agree with that. I have a couple of recommendations. After devouring Demon Copperhead Mm -hmm. um, by Barbara Kingsolver, I had a bunch of people show up on Instagram and say, you got to read Poisonwood Bible if you haven't yet. Mm -hmm. And I hadn't. Um, And oh my God everyone's right. right that book's amazing okay so same I love Demon Copperhead and I have not read Poison in the Bible so okay I thought for sure by synopsis alone that it would not be for me um, mm. because I don't really like books that are so heavily religious um I have okay. such a li- religious side to it but the way that she's actually using it to interrogate religion and interrogate what is a true like hall of fame bad dad um mm you just hate him <laughs> okay really and and it's just a group but it's it's a really it was just a fantastic ride I'm so glad I was pushed mm-hmm. to um go into her and now I just have to read it all I have to go back because I've only read the bean trees and demon copperhead other than that and she's got a much deeper catalog than I yeah, thought I actually like, really I- like her nonfiction. um so animal vegetable miracle was you know it's about locavore and stuff but then there's a I can't, I'm not going to remember the name there's a um an essay collection. She might have more than one essay collection, but after I read that, read this essay collection, it's wonderful. So yeah, I I feel like I'm just scratching the surface and I'm excited to also return to the bean trees because that was a great book and um, I've got to reread it. And then I'm also going to recommend Wishing Game by Meg Schaefer. This is a book that's totally for book lovers. Um, It's kind of like the Westing game, a little bit grown up. Um, or maybe sort of like if you got to go to Lemony Snicket's Island, because it's about <laughs> um, it's about a children's author who's who's made this uh, the island that's from his books, like where he lives. And he's uh, bringing people back to the island who all ran away there at one point in time in their lives um, as adults to play a game of his. Whoa. And it's just super fun. Um it's it's fun page turnery like a very cozy uh bookish book yeah say the name and and author again it's meg schaefer's wishing game okay and all of these recommendations all live on so many damn you can see them by episode page if you'd like and of course the always recommendation is not the always recommendation, but the recommendation I have this time is to buy it. I have some questions for you. I really just love this book. It completely, it, it, you know, it's the type of book that you should buy and then set some time aside um, to actually let it get its hooks into you because you're going to want to have time set aside to get into it. Um, and uh, also, I love when people go to my patreon.com slash smdb and pledge even a dollar you get an access to a full library of episodes that aren't aired anywhere but just on patreon it's just for those cool people that support the show um and i really really like itunes reviews if you leave those those are the best 
and Rebecca Mackay. Thank you for hanging out. This was absolutely a joy, and I love all of your work. I'm so excited that to hear about a possibly divisive next, <laughs> next part of your library. Thank you. I really appreciate it.